Okay, so as mentioned, uh, Revelation. We're still in the book of Revelation and will be for quite some time as we move into some very difficult chapters, some very graphic, uh, lots of different things going on, dramatic and lots of imagery uh, in chapters 17 and 18. As we mentioned last week, as we did kind of our background check on verse 5, Babylon, who is Babylon? Both of these chapters are really consisting of the judgment of Babylon. Babylon, as we mentioned, becomes uh, kind of a dual spiritual political force, and it's everything that's anti-God. So Babylon is at work right now in the world. John said, remember, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he said, the, the world lies in the power of the evil one. And so that's what's going on right now. So we see these forces sometimes just opposed to, as Christians, we think, wow, this makes wise and logical sense. But to the world, they're opposed to that. So they get it right once in a while, but only by the grace of God. Most of the time, the focus is very anti-God, anti-truth, anti-scripture, anti-Jesus, anti-Christ. And so that's what that force is. So we're going to be looking at the judgment of Babylon in these two chapters. Uh, but also, how do we apply that to ourselves then? Because we are really living in the midst of Babylon, and we're going to talk about that more from the remainder of chapter 17 this morning. So if you've got your Bible with you, it's a fairly lengthy section, and then we'll touch on some of the details, 18 verses. Please stand if you can, if you would like to. Uh, you're welcome to remain seated if 18 verses is too long to stand. Beginning at verse uh, 1 in chapter 17, Revelation. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her, her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And as we looked at last week, and upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. That's her title. That's her identity. Verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Now, when he says wonder, it's not wonder as in wonderful. John is just shocked. He's in a state of shock and can't believe what he's seeing. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not. You may remember that, the Antichrist who was dead or thought to have been dead. I personally believe that it was a ruse. It was a, it was a charlatan type thing. It was a magic trick. But then he's, a, he's alive again. Uh, Revelation 13. And is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not 
and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom, or this calls for wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is the other. Uh, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven and goes to destruction. You getting confused yet? Verse 12, and the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. One hour meaning just a brief time. Remember, this is just three and a half years, so it's a very brief time. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. I hope you have that verse highlighted in the midst of all this craziness. 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. So even the enemy... Even Satan himself turns on his own. So as this Babylon becomes more and more powerful, you can see the wickedness that takes place. That even, even the Antichrist cannot have any sense of rival power. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. Fulfilled. I want to say amen to that. And the woman whom you saw is the great city, which we talked about, verse 5, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, take a breath, and you may be seated. <laughs> Let's ask for God's help as we look at this chapter this morning. Father in heaven, we just are amazed at the detail. We're amazed at the prophetic detail. And, it, and we, along with John, stand and sit in wonder, not just at the craziness of the world and the things that are going to take place precisely according to your prophetic detail in this tribulation period that lasts seven years, this three and a half years. But Lord, we wonder in amazement when we think that we are the chosen, that those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ are the called, and that you are our Lord of lords and King of kings, that you are the Lamb who was slain on our behalf, who rose again and stands in heaven as our advocate. How great that is. And Lord God, if we go away with nothing else this morning, may we be encouraged by the fact that we are victors in Jesus. Give us understanding, be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many times have you been to some sizable event? Now, by that I mean it could be a concert, a musical concert, a, a football game, a basketball game, a college graduation, some show at the Oregon Convention Center, a crowded corn maze maybe more recently on the weekend, and you have no idea where you're supposed to park or how you're supposed to get in. What do you do? Most of us just follow the crowd, right? We make that, that uh, lightning-quick assumption wherever a sizable line forms, 
we must be in the right place driving or walking in the right direction, right? People have called it the herd mentality. Everyone else looks like they know what they're doing, so just do what everyone else is doing. Well, ironically, a few years back, and maybe this has happened to you, I was searching for the right lot to park in, going to something. I don't even remember what the event was now. And out of frustration, just turned through a gate and kept driving. And as I looked in my rearview mirror, I remember I said out loud, I have no idea where I'm going, but I have a whole line of cars following me. <laughs> it's the herd mentality. The herd mentality plays prominently here in these verses that we've just read together. These verses that may sound somewhat confusing to you in Revelation chapter 17. Because everything focuses on verse 5. We have the title of the one who plays center stage, world center stage, in chapter 17 and chapter 18, Babylon the Great, who, as I mentioned, we looked at last Sunday via the Old Testament historical background check. Who is Babylon? Where did she begin? What, is, what does she consist of? How do those, those pagan practices and everything begin to infiltrate Israel and then develop into a world religion here in the book of Revelation. So Babylon the Great is in line at the front of the line, spiritually wielding powerful deceptive influence across the entire globe, though she is literally going nowhere fast. So certainly, obviously, all of the details that we've looked at in chapter 17 already and the, the things that we're going to look at in the weeks ahead in chapter 18 are disturbing. They're graphic. But they give us a good grasp of what the broad path to destruction looks like. Remember Jesus talked about two paths in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. There's two ways you can go. There's the narrow road. Few are going to find that. Few are going to follow that. Then there's the broad path to destruction that most of the people in the world are on. And I believe that as we look at some of these details, it can help us identify clear marks of what I'd like to call herd religion or herd spiritual movements. So though future-based and post-rapture, the tribulation, the stage is already set. So we've talked about that. Scripture gives ample evidence in the New Testament that those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ will be raptured. We will meet Christ in the air before this tribulation period, this seven-year tribulation period. And then at the end of that seven years, Jesus Christ comes again in victory. So we know that that's all future and that all takes place in that post-rapture period. But we do know now, as we began to look at last Sunday, that the stage is already set. Babylon is here. Babylon is already in motion. John told us in 1 John chapter 4.13 that the spirit of Antichrist is already active in our world today. Present tense. So let's look at some of the details in this chapter, some of which are difficult to, to figure out, but what we can grasp, again, centering on verse 5, is the marks 
of this herd religion, of these spiritual movements. What do we need to look out for today? How do we make sure that we don't just line up like a herd behind various movements that may sound spiritual, that may sound Christian, that may have a veneer of biblical truth about them, but in essence are part of this deception, deception of Babylon, which will grow to its worldwide influence during the tribulation period. Well, here's mark number one. The mark, first of all, of appearance. Very, very important in our social media world today. The mark of appearance. The truth is her claim, Babylon's claim, is not her substance. Is not her substance. Go back and look at verse 4, which we looked at last week. And the woman was clothed. So we get a good description of her in purple and scarlet. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Having in her hand a gold cup. But then we find out that that gold cup that looks nice and sparkly on the outside is full of abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. And then verse 5 tells us exactly who she is and what she is full of, her true identity, not what she projects to the world. So she's clothed with purple and scarlet. In John's particular day, as John is viewing this, in his first century audience, as they are reading this and digesting this, purple and scarlet were akin to royalty and luxury, extremely expensive dyes in John's day. So you didn't buy this stuff off the rack. You didn't go down to Macy's. You didn't get this at Ross. These were things that were not available to common people. The same with all the jewelry that she was wearing. This was luxury. This was, this was celebrity wardrobe. She is set apart in, in pomp and image here, fully utilizing on-stage celebrity influence. But the reality is dramatically different. Off-stage... Behind the scenes, in reality, she is a hideous spiritual adulterer. Her abominations pollute her gold cup, her, her goblet. In fact, we read of this back in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. Listen to this description. This would characterize Babylon. For such men are false disciples or apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds." Now, there's a word that's used three times in those three verses. It's used one time in each one of those verses. What is it? Disguise. Disguise. Why is that key? We could also translate that verse as masquerade. It means literally in the Greek language to change one's outward form. To change one's outward form. Now, do you see why that emphasis is important? Because the reality is who the person really is. That's who they are. Their, their character, their, their immorality, or their lack of character. 
the abominations, all those things that are in her gold cup. But she's changing her outward form. That's what Satan does. That's what these verses are talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's disguising, changing his outward form as an angel of light. So we need to be very, very careful when we look at the identity of Babylon. Babylon is not just going to present herself in all her immorality, in all her paganism, in all her evil and wickedness. She is going to present herself as an angel of light. She is going to present herself as something very attractive, something alluring. And touch on, you don't think the enemy knows by now. He's been at this for a long, long time. Which buttons to push in your life? Which things people respond to? He is the master deceptive marketer. I used to work in marketing for years and years and years. And I've told people this many years ago in reflecting back on that business that one of the first principles, principles I was taught in marketing was the gist of marketing is trying to sell people things they don't really need. And that's exactly what Satan is doing. He is creating a discontent in your life so that he can manipulate you to respond to something that's not true. He's disguising himself. What did Jesus say about him in John 8:44? We read that last week. Satan is a liar. He's been a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar, and he can't do anything contrary to that because that is his nature. His nature is to lie. His nature is to disguise. They're very much synonymous. The second mark that we see in Babylon the Great is the mark of authority, the mark of authority. So the truth there is she compels a following. She compels a following. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 17. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot. And then look at the last phrase. Who sits on many waters. Who sits on many waters. Now compare this with the angel's explanation in verse 15. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. Is that about cover everybody? Look at verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth. There's two groups here. Kings of the earth, those who dwell on the earth, were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Everybody's covered here. Look at her influence. Look at her intimidation. They are intoxicated. That's the imagery in scripture using the alcohol references. They are literally the peoples of the earth, the kings of the earth, those in authority, the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated with her, swayed, intimidated, coerced. This is a common thread in errant spiritual movements. This is a common thread in cultic movements. They always have some kind of a, of a charismatic manipulative leader that compels a herd to follow. And such it will be in the last days as well. They will be able to intimidate, yes, through 
charisma, because we saw Satan masquerades as an angel of light. There's a charisma there. There's, so when you look at them, you don't see this, this hideous zombie-looking, you know, half-flesh face and, and a spiked tail and, and fire coming off them and they smell like sulfur. You don't see that. What you see is a very compelling leader. And you've seen people in this position, and it may have even been you at one time. Where you just look at the leader and you just, wow. Everything they say is just, wow. It must be true because they said it. And I just pretty much believe everything they say. And there's, a, there's another part to that as well, the peer pressure that comes in. Sometimes these leaders can be so intimidating that you dare question anything that they say. And something is wrong with you, right? Why are you questioning? All these other people aren't questioning. What's wrong with you? Just get in line. Be part of the herd, so beware. The third mark is the mark of alliance. The mark of alliance. She partners with the ungodly. She partners with the ungodly. Look at verse 3 again. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, weird, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. She's sitting on a scarlet beast. Well, what does that mean? What, is, what does that phrase mean? In the original language, it has two ideas. Number one, she is supported by, and number two, she has a, a dominant role. She's sitting on it. So at this particular time, until the tide turns and, and she gets flipped off and, and ripped to shreds, she has the dominant role. So she's what everybody sees. Her alliance, though, is with whom? The beast. She can't do anything apart from the beast. The origin of Babylon is from the beast. The empowering of Babylon is from the beast. The leadership of Babylon is from the beast. The ideas that represent all of Babylon throughout history, right now in our world and in the book of Revelation, are empowered by the beast. And we see this long explanation beginning in verse 6 and running all the way through verse 14, which we highlighted then as our victory verse. That even in the midst of all of this craziness, there is victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is all this talking about? What are these, these seven hills and, and all of these kings and these different kingdoms? There's a linking together of a global empire and, a, and an apostate, satanic religion that are part of, remember, three and a half years only, the Antichrist reign. Think about that for a moment. Only three and a half years. Now, we know there's got to be a lot of, a lot of stage setting. There's got to be a lot of preparation. That is even going on right now. John told us that in 1 John. But the actual reign, the, the commanding of complete authority over the world, is only going to be three and a half years. And we can go back and see that also in Revelation chapter 13. But the power comes from the beast. The power comes from the abyss, Scripture tells us. What is the abyss? 
The abyss is the abode of demonic forces. In fact, we read almost toward the end of the book of Revelation when we get into chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him where? Into the abyss. Home sweet home, Satan. And shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So that's his home. That's where the demons are from. That's the source. That's their birthplace in a sense. Not really because they're fallen angels, but that's where they go back to. That's where it all comes from. The abyss, the abode of demonic forces. So what is all of this that he's talking about then where this is where how they're empowered? But what is this? What is, what is represented? What is going to happen? And what is meant by these seven hills and, and these various kingdoms? And, the, and the, you know, where you, the language gets a little bit confusing. It's hard to pinpoint exactly. Because there's a lot of people that have a lot of ideas. Some people come to Revelation and they just love to come up with, you know, volumes and volumes of possibilities. But I think the key word is those are possibilities. More than likely with the evidence that is here, and there's even a few problems with it, because it's not absolutely black and white. God didn't say, this is exactly what I'm talking about. So there's some room for you know, saying, well, we can't be absolutely dogmatic about this, but it seems to point to some kind of revived Roman Empire. So everything seems to focus back on Rome again, that Rome will be the center. It's almost like Rome and Jerusalem kind of become the center of the end times battle between the satanic forces and the people of God. We've got the, we've got the two witnesses. We've got the 144,000 uh, Jews who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have the Battle of Armageddon that involves all the armies of the world that shifts over to outside of Jerusalem again in Israel. But all of this power base that we call Babylon seems to be centered in Rome or some revived Roman Empire. The Seven Hills. Rome has historically been called the city of Seven Hills. Palatine, Aventine, Calibre, Esquiline, Vimello, Cornero, Capitoline. The Seven Hills of Rome, that this, this empire, this, this wicked empire that comes about after the fall of these seven kings or these five that have fallen, which could represent Assyria, Egypt, Neo-Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, the Roman Empire, which John was experiencing while he was writing this. He was a prisoner, actually, on the island of Patmos because of Rome. So the Roman authorities put him on Patmos as a prisoner. So then there's one more. And the one more is the rise of the Antichrist who rules over this revived Roman Empire in the last days, in those three and a half years. Now, what about the kings? 
Well, we don't know who those kings are, but we know that there's going to be an alliance of power here. And so in order, think about this, to have world dominance, remember this is spiritual and political, you have got to have an alliance of powers. There's already going to be powers on earth like there are right now. There's distinct powers all over this globe. And we have rivalries going on, right? China, Russia, United States, the biggest powers. Well, it's going to be the same in that day, but they're all going to slowly come into an alignment with each other. And the Antichrist then will rule over the world politically. Who those five kings are, we don't know. But there are five kings that are probably very, very powerful. And kings could mean presidents. Kings could mean parliament. Kings could mean anything. Could mean literal kings. But they represent the authorities in the world at that particular time. And there is not one authority. This is the thing that should blow your mind instead of trying to exactly identify each one. There's not going to be a king or an authority or a political structure or a nation on earth that will not be ruled over by the Antichrist. Now, isn't that amazing? As big and powerful as our world is, that one beast will have that much influence. Why? Because of the alliance, the alliance with the abyss, the abyss representing Satan of old. He is the one who gives all of this to this revised empire. So what's our takeaway from this? Alliance. The word is alliance. Why should that be important for us to think about as a mark to watch out for a Babylon, even in our world today? Because alliance represents another word that is tossed around often. We hear it often as believers, and that word is unity. And how often is that word misused? Unity is what the church needs to be, unified. What does that mean? And what's the danger with that? Do we just need to be unified? Look at all the denominations. Look at all the churches. Look at all the splinter groups. This is ridiculous. Yeah, in many ways, it is ridiculous. But in other ways, bear with me, it's necessary. Because the only valid biblical unity is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. And that's where Paul says the church's business is to maintain the unity of the spirit. No other unity is valid. The unity of the spirit. Now, what does that include? The gospel. So is it unity to, for churches to gather together, for Christians to gather together with, if one group says, we don't believe that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation, and the other group says it is. That's not unity. That's not unity. I remember years ago, there, there was a pastoral group that got a hold of me, and they wanted me to meet with them. And I said, oh, you know, I want to find out a little bit about your group. And I was appalled at some of the people that were part of this pastoral meeting once a month under the guise of unity. Hey, we got to show, you know, our county or our city or whatever that we're united. And I'm thinking, with cult groups? I'm not united with them. 
And as soon as I told the guy no, he said, oh, his voice changed. He said, oh, into the phone, you're one of those. <laughs> Thought. And I asked him, I said, what are those? And he said, oh, you're one of those guys that thinks he's better than everybody else. And, you know, and, and I told him, I said, no, I'm, I'm one of those who believes that if we're going to have an alliance, if we're going to have a, a shared unified front, there are things that you don't compromise. The word of God, the basis of salvation, the, the lordship and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, his shed blood, all of those things. You don't compromise. That's not unity. And so we need to beware of that. Because you can imagine in the last days, that peer pressure is going to be greater and greater and greater. Here's the next mark of a the mark is the mark of apostasy. The mark of apostasy. She is at war with the lamb. Don't forget that. She is at war with the lamb. She is full of abominations and unclean things. In the Greek, those are extremely strong words in the original text, usually used in describing extreme wickedness and religious sins and hypocrisy, also called spiritual adultery, which means looking like you are doing something for God or representing God, but in reality... You are in rebellion. You're not submissive to God. Apostasy means literally a departure from the truth or a falling away from the truth. We read, in fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it was from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself a, a uh, above every so-called God or ob object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Who is that? Who is Paul talking about? The very one we're reading about in the book of Revelation, right? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. The Antichrist, the great apostasy has to happen for the Antichrist to raise up on the world stage. Apostasy meaning falling away. Falling away from what? Falling away from the truth. First Timothy, in fact, uh, one book over says at the beginning of chapter 4, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Could that be more clear? People will fall away paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. What are those things? Well, quite obviously, they have their source in the beast. They have their source in Satan himself. They have their source in the message, same message of the Antichrist. They're not, it's not the truth. You can go back to your Bible and you can, you can analyze everything, but there's a falling away. Now, how can this happen? Haven't you already begun to see it happen? We've talked about that. When we talk about the word evangelical, what does that mean anymore? 20 years ago, 
If you heard the term evangelical, you would say, oh, that's a church that believes the Bible and the gospel, right? Today, you hear the term evangelical. Uh, I don't really know. It could mean that politically they vote Republican, but then I don't know either because there's all these so-called evangelicals who have become very liberal politically. So I don't really know what it means. How does it happen? Well, maybe the most recent Gallup poll that was just taken a couple of months ago will shed a little bit of light on this. And here's some of the findings. Digest this. Fewer people see the Bible today as the word of God. Only 20% see the Bible as the word of God. That's down from 30% 10 years ago. It was at 40% in 1980. Falling away? Does that show you? That's a very short period of time to go that fast in a fundamental belief. More see the Bible as fables and legends, 29%. That was only 10% in 1980. And thirdly, there is a sharp decrease in the statement that church or religion is very, very important. 44% say that it's important to some degree. 20 years ago it was 60%. It's gone down 20%. A Gallup senior scientist, Frank Newport, made this comment. This marks the first time significantly more Americans are viewing the Bible as not divinely inspired. This was just a couple of months ago this past summer that this poll was taken. So what do we do? How can we resist following the herd? How can we resist the, the pole of Babylon, of the herd mentality? It's out there, it's powerful, it's strong. The stage is set. The spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world, John told us. I just want to close with this real quick. So I'm not going to belabor the point here, but I want to close with three things from the text here. And I want to call them herd busters. Okay? Herd busters. The first one is the need for discernment. The need for discernment. Look again at verse 9 in Revelation chapter 17. We're there again. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Isn't that an interesting statement that the angel makes to John? And trying to explain to him to what's going on. John is in wonder. Remember, John is just standing there, probably shell-shocked at what he's seeing. And the angel says to him, here is the mind who has wisdom. Or this calls for a mind to have wisdom. Calls for meaning it isn't obvious. Okay? If this calls for wisdom, that means it's not an obvious thing that we would all recognize. I'll go, ah, I don't need wisdom. I just see it. It's plain as day. You know, that's black. That's white. No, this calls for wisdom. It's not readily seen on the surface. Now, we've got a problem upstairs in the, in the one room on the far side of the church. One of the rooms upstairs has some rot in the floor. We've talked about that. We've shut off that room. That's why we moved the whole uh, baby basket operation across the hallway. And, and we've got people working on that. And the most recent thing that needs to be done. So we had a kind of a water flow expert come in last week and made some assessment. And he said, you know, there's just, there's just something I can't see here. So I need you to take off two feet of sheetrock in various places, and we need to see what's going on behind the wall. It's not obvious. 
You've got to remove the sheetrock to find out. You can't see through the sheetrock. You can't look at it. The sheetrock isn't stained. There's no evidence that there's water coming down, but maybe behind the sheetrock there'll be something. But it has to be removed. They have to do something to be able to see what's really going on. That's what discernment is. That's what wisdom is, seeing that which is not seen. Scriptures tell us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. What's our battle against? Flesh and blood representing that that's standing there right in front of you. Our battle is a spiritual battle. Our battle is against the authorities and in wicked, and wicked places and high places and, and the whole demonic realm. That's where our battle is, but you can't see it, right? Now, you may have felt it. Have you ever walked into a place and, and uh, maybe you just felt kind of an oppressive sense about it? And you know something's just wrong there? It's probably a spiritual issue going on. That didn't end in the New Testament, you know. The demonic forces, they're still here with us. And that's just going to become more and more powerful in the last days. So we need discernment. We need to ask, is this the right way? Is this the right way? Number two, it's the need for guidance. Verse three. Look at verse three again. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Isn't that an interesting phrase there too? He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. In the spirit, John saw things as they really were with the non-distracting wilderness as a backdrop. I thought that was interesting. Do we see things this way? Asking God by a spirit to show us the truth apart from distractions, apart from our busy impatience, apart from selfish motives. Asking God, is this the real thing? Do we ask him to do that? We are on a fast track today. We're moving all of the time. Okay, we can barely sit down and contemplate things. We barely take time to have quiet. How are we going to discern? How are we going to know that these things are from God? If we don't call upon the Holy Spirit and say, is this a real thing? Can you show me the real thing? I thought it was interesting that John was taken by the Spirit, but the, the truth was put against the wilderness. So there wasn't all that craziness going on behind him where John would be going, whoa, man. It was just to see things as they really were. Here's the last thing, the need for resistance. The need for resistance. We look at verse 14 again, the greatest verse in this whole chapter. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. We are overcomers, John has told us to, because of the Lamb, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. The called, the chosen, and the faithful. Faithful. Our, our choice and perseverance are based on our secure position as victors in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have to resist the herd. We don't need them. You don't need the herd. Your security is in Jesus Christ. You win in the end. You're a part of verse 14 if you know Christ. You don't need the herd. Let them run over you. 
Let them make fun of you. Let them mock you. Let them manipulate you. Let them try everything they possibly can to make you get in their line and you don't need them. Say, no, thank you. Resist. Resist the herd. And we need to ask the question, how many things do I do or believe because everyone else does? We really need to honestly ask that question. Do I read this book because it's really, really popular and everyone else reads it? Do I watch this thing because everyone else? Do I believe this thing or not believe this thing because everybody else does? I thought it was interesting with the whole abortion issue, the movement that was going on, that actually, you know, it used to be a really popular thing. It was kind of one of those hotbed, became almost a big political issue in the 1980s. And then what happened? As the church kind of got more cozy with the world and we got further and further away from just biblically-based churches, well, we don't talk about abortion. There's a lot of churches out there. There's a lot of churches in the Portland area that started to say, we don't deal with abortion anymore. We don't talk about it. We're uncomfortable with that. First Image was having problems with that. Churches were not as supportive anymore. And then the Roe v. Wade thing changed, and all of a sudden, now people are interested again. But God's truth never changes. We, can, we can't do that where we say the gospel, the gospel is what the gospel is, but, you know, well, nobody, nobody talks about hell anymore. Nobody talks about God's wrath anymore. So, so we're not going to talk about it either. Because that's not, like, cool right now. That turns people off. The truth is the truth, and it's always the truth. We don't change our message. We don't change what we believe or not believe based upon what is acceptable by everybody else. We're going to get in a lot of trouble that way. And believe me, that's how this movement is going to gain momentum where the Antichrist is going to be able to take over the world. So we need to ask that question. Am I doing what I'm doing or I'm not doing based upon because everybody else is doing it or not doing it? Discernment, guidance, resistance. We got to bust out from the herd. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these amazing pictures in the book of Revelation. And how even in the, as we read, all these disturbing images and this, this powerful, powerful worldwide force in Revelation chapter 17, we've got verse 14. And we thank you, Lord, that that's all we need. Because no matter how powerful evil becomes, you are forever the King of kings and Lord of lords. And may we never forget that. We thank you for it, and we pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen.